Now I'm going to, in just a minute, I'm going to show you guys a picture of your ideal God. Are you excited? You're curious, maybe. Well, how does he know what my ideal God is? Well, I know. I know for sure. Because it's also the God that, that I, deep down, long for. It's the God that I dream of. This God would make us truly happy. I don't think my remote is working, by the way. So can you, can you advance? Yeah. There it is. What in the world kind of weird religion is Pastor Smith peddling here this morning? Plato? What am I talking about? Anybody have a guess? Why would Plato be my ideal god? User-friendly? User friendly? Well, yeah. You can form it into whatever you want. We like to have a god that is moldable. We can do whatever we want. We can fashion him however we want him to be. How do I want God to be this week? Well, let's see. I want you guys to, to be honest here today. Next slide, please. About what kind of God you really want. Because maybe you saw that and you've already heard what I said. And you're like, that's not me, Pastor. Really? Deep down? ever wanted that Plato God? I think certain, if I'm being honest, at certain times that would be real nice. Have you ever, um, have you ever heard someone say, well, the God that I worship would never do this. Well, the God that I believe in is like this. Have you ever heard someone, have you, have you ever said that before? Maybe, maybe. Let's pause for a moment and consider how dumb it is to say something like that. Like, what, do I get to decide? Is God made of Play-Doh? And I can be like, well, you know, I think what God really meant when he said this is, you know, this over here, so let's kind of change that around. How foolish would it be for us to think that God is made of Play-Doh and that we can form him into whatever God that we choose? What kind of God do you really want? Well, in a minute, we're going to go a little bit deeper into the text of Luke chapter 8, and we're going to see another group of Plato worshipers in there, and yeah, we're going to give them a hard time for a little bit, but then we're going to, you know, like wipe the Plato off the mirror and see ourselves. Because these people in Luke chapter 8, they saw Jesus in all of his power, and they said, nope, we're good get away from us. And why, why does humanity do that? Why does humanity look at Almighty God and kind of recoil or ask him to go away? Why do we do that? Well, I have some thoughts. Uh, maybe you've thought these things too. Maybe some of these will resonate with you. Have you ever been scared of God? Have you ever just <laughs> looked him in the eye and seen how powerful he is? And ooh, I don't know if I can handle that God. Maybe it scares you a little bit. Have you ever thought that God is a little unapproachable? You know, he's, he's distant. Maybe I can't, I feel like I can't relate to him. He's just so different. I could never know him or understand him. And so, 
we then prefer to have a kind of God that we can mold and we can fit him, once we're done, we can fit him back into that container and put the lid back on, and I feel, I've got this nice moldable, tame God. That's the kind that I want. Jesus, he's kind of uncontrollable. I I can't get a handle on him. I want the Plato God. We're going to see that. We're going to talk about that more. Uh, But we're going to go, next slide, please. We're going to walk through the text here. So when Jesus had stepped out on land, there met him a man from the city who had demons. Get that plural, demons. For a long time, he had worn no clothes, and he had not lived in a house, but among the tombs. We're going to stop there for a minute. This guy's got, like, everything going against him, right? It seems that he has been exiled from the community. Maybe, maybe that was the community, you know, actually said, we don't want you anywhere near us. Or maybe the demons drove him out. Uh, but he's living among the tombs. Uh, don't think about, like, a modern cemetery. You know, it's all, some of those are so beautiful. No, this is, like, caves and caverns, probably. And he's, you know, they say that he's shackled and everything. Um, So on top of being terrifying and filled with demons, this man also would have been considered unclean because of his proximity to dead bodies. So this is the last human being that anyone would want to go near. If you saw this guy, and then you're like, well, I'd I'd be like, well, let me see what's behind door number two. You know, whatever it is, got to be better than going up to this guy. No one wanted to approach him. Well, except for one guy. One guy was fine with approaching him. So we continue. When he saw Jesus, he cried out and fell down before him and said with a loud voice, What have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? I beg you, do not torment me. For he had commanded the unclean spirit to come out of the man. For many a time it had seized him. He was kept under guard and bound with chains and shackles, but he would break the bonds and be driven by the demon into the desert. Jesus then asked him, What is your name? And he said, Legion, for many demons had entered him. And they begged him not to command them to depart into the abyss. There's a lot going on there. We've got to stop for a second. Legion. That's a a term that the Romans would use to to describe military companies of several thousand. There are thousands of demons possessing this man. And so now, there are also thousands of demons, an army of demons, if you will, face-to-face with Jesus. But do you notice which side is afraid of the other? The demons are afraid of Jesus. They're begging him for mercy because they, they know, oh, Jesus is here. We're toast. All right, we move on. Uh, now, a large herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside, and they begged him to let them enter these, so he gave them permission. Then the demons came out of the man and entered the pigs, and the herd rushed down the steep bank into the lake and drowned. I already know you guys are thinking, oh man, I really hope Pastor talks a lot about the pigs. That seems like the most interesting part of the story here. Well, I'm sorry to disappoint you, but I'm not going to talk very much about the pigs. 
uh, because frankly, the Holy Spirit did not lead me to obsess over the pigs this week. Uh, it led me to obsess over something different, so, and we'll get to that. But I'm sure you can find books or something where people are happy to talk about the pigs for a long time. I think it's kind of like a, there, like there's some humor in here. I think it's kind of for the benefit of the Jews, right? Because the Jews were commanded not to eat pigs and other animals, but it seemed like pigs were the big one um, because they were unclean. And so I think here Jesus, kind of like winking at the Jews, he is uh, sending the unclean spirits into the unclean animals and they all drown, okay? That's as far as I'm gonna go about the pigs. I apologize. Uh, but we, we continue on. When the herdsmen saw what had happened, they fled and told it in the city and in the country. Then people went out to see what had happened and they came to Jesus and found the man from whom the demons had gone sitting at the feet of Jesus clothed and in his right mind and they rejoiced no that's not what it says it's what you would expect it to say but what it says is and they were afraid and those who had seen it told them how the demon possessed man had been healed then all the people of the surrounding country of the Gerasenes asked him to stay with them for no Again, that's what you would expect, but they asked him to depart from them, for they were seized with great fear. So he got into the boat and returned. Now these, these details here about how the people were afraid of Jesus, that's the part that I obsessed over when approaching this text. And I, it's just like, you know, that's not what you would expect. You have to do like a double take. Is this the right version of the Bible here? No, they were afraid. Why? Why would they be afraid of Jesus? Why would they be unsettled and bothered by seeing this formerly demon-possessed man now sitting there at peace and restored to his old self? Why would they be afraid? Now, I've got a thought, and maybe, maybe this is right. I think it's right, otherwise I wouldn't be preaching it. I think that they, they could not conceive of something scarier than a man, this uncontrollable man filled with thousands of demons. Is there anything scarier than that? I don't think so. So now Jesus comes on the scene and Jesus proves to be more powerful than thousands of demons. He's more powerful than the scariest thing that they could imagine. And so logically they're thinking, Jesus is the scariest guy we can imagine. So what do you want to do with the scariest guy you can imagine? Get him out of here. Because wouldn't it be a lot nicer to have a God that you could kind of shape to be however you wanted him to be? Bring on the Play-Doh God. We don't want this scary one. And sometimes... I think it happens with us. When we see how powerful God is, it can scare us. And so unless we can uh, control him or change him, unless we can make him into Plato, Plato Jesus, we don't want anything to do with him. We either want him to get away or we will run away. Anybody here ever read uh, the Chronicles of Narnia? Raise your hand. Let's see how cultured 
this place is. Okay, a few of us. Um, so it's a whole series of books, right, by C.S. Lewis, seven books. Uh, but there, there's one book in particular, it's the most famous one, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Maybe, has anybody read that one, maybe? Okay, has anybody, here, let me, let, me, let me go further. Has anybody seen the movie? Okay, there we go. Yeah, see? You have to work a little bit uh, to get on the same page sometimes, but that's okay. So, this is a, it's a Christian story. It's a Christian allegory by C.S. Lewis. And there is a character in the series named Aslan. And he is a lion. An actual, like, a roaring lion. And he is the God figure in the series. And so I'm going to show you guys, uh, it's, it's one of the most famous uh, quotes, I think, from the whole series. It's a conversation about Aslan the lion. So there's like, in this, there's a lot of animals that can talk in this series, so there's animals and humans. So here's a conversation. Uh, Mr. Beaver said, Aslan is a lion, the lion, the great lion. Ooh, said Susan. I thought he was a man. Is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. You know, Susan's a smart girl. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe. But he's good. He's the king, I tell you. He's wild, you know, not like a tame lion. Well, just like Aslan, Jesus is not exactly safe nor is he tame. But he's good. Jesus is good. And even, you know, for, for us now, we have this choice then, knowing about the power of God. Even knowing that he is more powerful than the scariest thing that you can imagine, there's still a choice. So do you want a Play-Doh tame God, or do you want the God who is who he is? Do you want God in all of his power and majesty and glory? You know, the true and real God. The amazing thing is that, next slide, the powerful, almighty God of the universe reveals himself in a personal way to us. And we see that primarily in the coming of Jesus Christ. Now, admittedly, there are times in the scriptures where you read about God and you think, this guy is kind of scary. This guy is very distant, he's very other, he's very unapproachable. Um, I think it's, it's fair to say that if you've read a lot in the Old Testament, you might think, well, that God kind of seems different than the one in the New Testament. Well, it's the same God, but that moment in time when, when we have what we call the incarnation, when God becomes flesh, becomes one of us in the person of Jesus Christ, that is a significant difference in the way that he now personally reveals who he is and how he is. A huge turning point. And so we see this powerful God becoming personal. But you know what? I have to say, 
that in one sense, God should scare us, right? <laughs> he should put the fear of God into us, right? Because as we stand there in front of him, we are well aware of our sin and our shortcomings, our flaws and our failures. And we know that as we stand before the holy, just ruler of all things, he could and should you know, squash us like a bug. We are small and insignificant compared to God. So when we approach him, well aware of our sin, we ought to be afraid. And so, sometimes we, yeah, go, go back a, a slide, but yeah, so when we, we, sometimes we try to stay away from God, from Jesus, out of fear, but he comes to us in a personal way. And the example that I was thinking of is in the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve eat the fruit, they fall into sin, and they realize it, they realize, you know what, we can't go face God anymore, because what if he destroys us? We have sinned. So what do they do? Do they march right? No, they, they go and they hide. But God, the almighty, just, powerful God, comes to them in a personal way with a personal promise of a Savior that would come. Jesus Christ, our Lord. He becomes one of us, and he proves to be more powerful than the scariest things that we could ever imagine. He proves to be more powerful than our sin then death itself, then Satan. And after he dies, he goes and proclaims that the victory is not Satan's, but it is his own, and he rises again and shares the victory with each one of us. He is more powerful than the scariest, greatest enemies that we have. And Jesus comes to us in a personal way to deliver this message. Really, like the most personal way that we have, he uses words to communicate this good, life-changing news for us. Now, I want to look at the final two verses here from our text because we see how Jesus gets this message, this saving message, out to other people. The man from whom the demons had gone begged that he might be with him, but Jesus sent him away, saying, Return to your home and declare how much God has done for you. And he went away, proclaiming throughout the whole city how much Jesus had done for him. Now, it doesn't necessarily have to be Jesus himself personally delivering the message, right? He's a genius. He sends just the right person to deliver the message. I, I would, it would be a struggle for me to think of a better, of a, of a person in human history better positioned to tell life-changing good news about an encounter with God than this man in our text. Can you imagine the testimony he had about God going back to his hometown? The before and after story of his life just writes itself. I don't know if you're I don't know how you are, if you're like me in this area or not, but, but if, I, if I have to do something new, if I have to have a new experience, go to a new place, maybe I'm feeling some anxiety, concerns about that, um, 
I will seek out someone that I personally know who has been through the same thing. And once I do, I latch onto them and ask them a thousand questions, okay? It's kind of annoying, I've heard. Um, but then when you, when you find someone who has personally been through something and personally knows the thing, they're kind of like the expert for you, and then you, you have some peace, you have some comfort knowing about that. They know. Well, I think that's, that's what's going on here. This man knows Jesus now in a personal way, and he is able to take this distant, powerful God and share him in a personal way. And that's, that's how, this, Jesus is such a genius. He's a brilliant man with how he does this, setting up this process of making disciples. That's how we came to know Jesus, right? It was pers- the message was personally shared with us by someone that we know and trust probably. And so now, now that we are disciples of Jesus, we are also called to, as we have opportunity, personally share a life-changing message about Jesus to other people, and so on, and so on it goes. And we get just a little bit of that process here in Luke chapter 8. Jesus is powerful, and yet he is personal. Delivers this personal message through people. Of course, whenever you encounter his word, whether you're hearing it today, whether you're reading it on your own, Jesus is there. The powerful Jesus comes to you in a personal way and speaks into your life. Whenever we celebrate the Lord's Supper like we're going to in just a little while, the powerful Jesus personally comes to you in his body and blood that he delivers for you those words spoken as we distribute communion. Powerful, personal, two little words for you that change lives. So I want to invite you This is going to sound weird, the way I'm going to say this. I I want you to allow God to be who he is, right? As if, like, we have that authority, right? But, But what I mean is, be comfortable with God being big and strong and powerful and be comfortable with with knowing that you will never totally understand who he is, at least on this side of eternity, and just be okay with that. You see big, powerful God, and realize that that he uses his power for your good. You know, you're seeing him, and you're like, well, I sure hope he's on my side. Well, the good news is he is. He is on your side. So don't don't get all hung up on how he's so much different, and oh, how can I relate to him? Focus on how he has revealed himself in Jesus to you. Focus on how he has had mercy upon you, Focus on how you can share that personal message with others. So do not fear. Throw, away, throw your Play-Doh God in the trash and cling to Jesus. Because the good news is this powerful, personal God is on your side. Would you pray with me? Almighty God, Sometimes we do. We stand before you and we are just, we're just overwhelmed. We can't handle how powerful you are, but Lord, help us to, to just rest in the way that you have revealed yourself. Help us to rejoice that you have come to us. We haven't had to try to find you. You have come near to us in Jesus. Help us to cling to him in faith. 
for all of our days. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.